Hello, welcome, welcome to that GD show. Hey, Genevieve. Hey, how are you doing, Dave? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a uh, rough week or two here, but we are doing okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry to hear that, and I'm glad to hear you're doing okay. I know it hasn't been fun. We definitely missed you last week. That's for yeah, sure. I missed you guys. You had a good show. I watched it back. In fact, I think I called in. I was probably the best caller this show's ever had. Oh, I, you know, no offense to our regular <laughs> callers, but I'm biased. Of course you were. And here is our guest, Steve Slocum. Hello, Steve. Hey, Dave. How are you? Thanks I'm for having good. me. Good. Good. Say hello to Genevieve. You met her backstage. Mm -hmm. Hi, Genevieve. Yes, it's Great very, very you. nice to uh, meet you, too. Um, as I mentioned when we were backstage, I have been reading your book all week, and it has definitely been the most fascinating book that I've read this year. So thank mm. you for writing it. Um, I very much appreciate oh, wow. yeah, that. Great. I think thank it's something you. that the book, the, uh, the world really needs. Cool. We're, well, we're going to be talking more about the book and it's called, why do they hate us? Um, and Genevieve, tell, tell us an interesting story about you going to the library looking for the book. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so <laughs> You know, I when I was a kid, I grew up going to the library all the time. I ha I still have the Dewey Decimal System memorized. So I'm over there in like the 280s and the 290s. And I know that this book is available. I looked for it already. And the library said it was there. And I could not find it anywhere. I was going crazy. And then I just looked over to the side and I realized I couldn't find it because it was on display. <laughs> the whole world to see. Um, and I... I felt so silly once I finally saw it. I walked like right past it a dozen times. Um, but your book is at least popular with the librarians, so so there is that. That's yeah, pretty amazing. I'm always glad to hear that for sure. Well, um, this was your first book, correct, Steve? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Debut book. Well, um, what a, let, let's let's catch the viewers up to our interesting history. You and me, we we um, we met. Uh, I, I want to say a couple of years ago, but I always get messed up when I reference last year or two years ago because I feel like there's a missing year that it just <laughs> didn't it just didn't happen. Sure. Um, but we were both in Houston. I was speaking yeah. at an oasis there, and you were in town for I think some meetings having to do with the. Tell me, what, what were the meetings? I, I, was at, I was at Rice University. I was um, helping um, one of the professors there um, give a lecture to his um, class on um, Islam in the 20th century in the U.S. There, see? Look at that. 
Rice University. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, so anyway, we had mutual friends that connected us and we had dinner there at a uh, Chinese buffet, I think. Um, yeah. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know why we chose that, but we did. And Bevan was there and Marie was there and you, and we had dinner and you, you told us your story and it was, um, fascinating and moving and um disturbing in in some ways and so we, we we've kept up since then and we've we've in fact we met up again about a year later in uh, los angeles and we were again i was there to speak you were there for a meeting and 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 we ended up being in the same place at the same time we ended up watching the super bowl together uh in la at a restaurant and had a good time um it was a year and a half ago uh, two super bowls ago i guess right yeah. So, yeah. um, so I've just, I've just, um, come to really be fond of you and, and, um, impressed with your story and your work and, and who you are and what you do. So give us a bit of the, the Steve Slocum story. What, what is your, how did you come to be here doing what you're doing? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's about a four-decade narrative. Um, I'll try to um, condense it down. Um, but I ended up um, um, becoming a very serious evangelical Christian uh, at about 17 years old, uh, college campus, University of Arizona, um, back in the Jesus people days. I think it was uh, right around the same time uh, you did Dave and yeah, uh, we have that in common. A lot of uh, parallel, yeah, parallel paths there. And uh, although I think I kind of dove in um, a little deeper, um, you know, I, I uh, along the way um, between um, going to Bible school, getting married, and having three children, uh, became obsessed with um, the uh, getting the message of the gospel to the Muslim. Muslim people. Uh, and so uh, right around 1992, we had originally planned to go to Egypt. Um, but then uh, the Gulf War, first Gulf War was, was taking place and everything uh, just uh, it wasn't working out. But right at that same time, uh, Soviet Union came apart. And the, uh, the Muslim republics, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, etc., um, opened up. And uh, so there was a, an opening for us to go um, serve there in uh, the country of Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so we, uh, we worked there uh, five, five years. And, um, you know, it was one of those things. Um, my, my time in Kazakhstan was transformative in so many ways. Um, on the positive side, you know, this is, uh, speaking of which, um, today is Indigenous Peoples Day. And um, so I had the privilege of, of living among an indigenous people for five years. Uh, they were lovely, wonderful, hospitable, generous, kind um, in every way. Uh, it was just the most refreshing um, experience I've ever had in terms of um, connecting with these people. I mean, here I am as a, uh, I had a master's degree in engineering. I had been working in the aircraft craft design field uh, for a number of years by that by that time and then here I find myself um, working with people who for most of their lives had um, lived a life of nomads and uh, raising sheep and um, living in yurts 
et cetera. And I found this amazing connection with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just wonderful. So kind of the parallel track with that is what was going on with our missionary community. Um, I ended up in one of those, um, I'm sure many can relate, uh, one of those nightmare situations where the, uh, the person in charge turned out to be a, a raging narcissist with all kinds of repressed sexuality issues um, that were, uh, we, we didn't find this out until honestly just recently. And for, for that reason, I can't say a whole lot about it because it's under investigation. Um, but this mm. um, sexuality issues, uh, including, um, you know, child abuse um, filtered out in, into, into this person's family, um, and the next generation, and then the next generation also were, were abusers. And um, my, my family was not um, untouched um, by all of this, not that they were abused, um, but they were, were, were pulled into it kind of secondarily. Um, so uh, ultimately, um, I decided um, kind of where, the, where the, the climax of the story goes and, and where I diverged from it was I decided I didn't, uh, I sort of started to catch on to this guy and what he was up to and decided I didn't want to work with him anymore. And as everyone knows, um, if you have worked with a narcissist, um, is that you, you don't leave a narcissist. Um, they will punish you and um, really attempt to destroy you. And so that's what happened um, in our case. Um, he, he really came after me. Um, I, he made an announcement from in front of the church um, made, and told lies about me and forbade everyone in the church from um, visiting me um, and my team of 40 other missionaries that I had been working with for the last couple of years forbade them from seeing me. And really the saddest part for me is that they all complied um, mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, no one, no one came and saw us uh, and we were just cast out. Um, so, and then the, the, uh, the ultimate um, difficulty, the, the ultimate um, grief for me was that um, he couldn't um, take me out. So he, he uh, went after my son uh, and um, through his school, he had kind of ownership of the teacher of the boys. Um, he, both of our sons were in the same class and he had brought the teacher in. And um, again, I, I, can't, I can't talk about the details because things are, are ongoing right now, but, but he, um, told the teacher to get my son kicked out of the school and to just ride him until he was kicked out because he knew that, you know, if we didn't have educational options for son, then we would have to leave the country. And uh, I was clueless to all of this, just, just doing my thing. And unfortunately I just was not clued into what was really happening. Hey, welcome back. Dave. Sorry, sorry guys. No worries. Yeah. Um, we, we lost and, you there um, for a second, Dave, but um, no. Yeah. Steve. I mean, everything you're saying is is so heartbreaking and i've i've heard the story similar stories from so many people either growing up in toxic christian communities or just with narcissists of any kind um but i didn't mean to to interrupt where you're going please please continue yeah so the just the the final piece of it um was the fact that um I didn't, I didn't realize it but after my son was, was being ridden by his teacher for a year. He, he had gone into depression and um, um, 
you know, everything came out all at once that, te that the, the teacher had been um, abusing, abusing boys. And um, as, soon, as soon as I heard this, um, I immediately just said, hey, we're out of here. I, I, I gathered my family up and within a, a week or so, we were out of country and um, back home. And I, I knew my son was struggling. So we were just trying to um, help him get his feet back on the ground. Um, but uh, unfortunately, um, you know, he, he gave it a, he gave it a good go. We all did. But, um, after about four years and an early marriage that ended, um, he took his own life. Um, and so that was, um, that was the price that, that we paid for, for our extreme commitment to, um, to all of this. That, um, when you told when you told us that at that restaurant in Houston, I think I burst out crying um, because I just I'd, I'd I'd seen this story told over and over again how um, how Christianity and the abuse of it had taken such a toll on families. And here you were as a as a man as a man of I'm not sure what's going on with Dave's internet, but I think, I think we've lost him for a second. Um, but mm. I, I don't precisely, I'll, I'll let him finish his thought when, when we do get frozen Dave back. Um, but, you know, I, in high school, I lost friends to suicide. Um, you know, I've recently mm. lost a parent, but I just, I can't even imagine mm the the pain of losing a child that way um especially combined just with you know the run of the mill religious trauma that i spend mm -hmm. so much time talking to people about um mm. i just can't tell you how how sorry i am that you oh, your families you. had to suffer through that and yeah. and you know it's it's interesting because i i spent most of my time talking about christianity because it is something that I'm most familiar with. It is something that influences, you know, my life as an American more than, than anything else. Um, but it, in a lot of circles in most mainstream circles, it's still not okay to, to speak out against a lot of the more dangerous ideologies and, and beliefs when it, you know, pertains to the Bible. But with Islam, people have no problem generalizing or attacking the faith as a whole. Um, it's nice to have you back, Dave. Are are you plugged in by any chance? I am plugged in. Uh, every, I don't know what's going on tonight. I've I've never had quite these network problems, but nonetheless, we will get through it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, very sorry. Anyway, where were we? <laughs> you were you were in in the middle of uh, of of speaking. I I lost your train of thought. Um, I did too. Just, that's, you you were okay. you were just giving me your response um, when I to uh, when I I um, told you about you know my story and and um, you know the, the the bad ending. Yeah, and it did that. Do you feel like that uh, all of that stuff that you guys went through in the Middle East and the family dynamics uh, cost you the marriage as well? I mean that that you you essentially had lost your faith at some point, correct? Or yeah, discarded um, you it. Know, it yeah, the the order was um, the the order was um, lo losing. Oops, I'm shaking my table. Sorry. Um, uh, 
losing losing my marriage then right. then losing my faith um gotcha. but only because as a missionary you don't get divorced um i mean honestly I, in our work um in kazakhstan we, we were we had you know what was considered a breakthrough in the muslim world we had you know hundreds of uh you know um muslim background um kazakhs you know in our church um, so, you know, I mean, honestly, we, I call those my rock star days. I was, I was actually kind of a rock star. Um, yeah. I had the greatest reports to send home and, you know, I would speak to huge crowds and tell, you know, about all the great things that we had going on, but boy, oh boy, that sure changed. Um, when, um, I decided to leave my marriage, um, and, in you know, um, just briefly, it was, it was just not a good marriage ever. It was mm -hmm. never, it was, it was just. It was just never, um, never good. And, you know, when you're in an overseas uh, pressure cooker, you know, especially with all the things that were going on, um, all, you know, if you have any issues at all, they become amplified. So, so, we, you know, we reached a breaking point and, um, but, but um, wow, it was so eye opening to mm -hmm. me when I saw how the, ch how the church handled it, you know, people who had never lived a day of their lives in my shoes knew exactly what I, what I could and couldn't do. Right. And they were really clear about it. And so, and so really I, it, that, that forced the issue, you know, I had to leave church. Um, it, it went, it went in parallel with leaving my marriage. Um, mm -hmm. No one would have me um, anymore. So, so you became um, damaged was, goods because of your, the, because of the fail, failing of your marriage, as they put it, you became correct. damaged goods and, and really no one wanted anything to do with you at that point. That's right. Yeah, that's when I started going it alone. Mm hmm. Well, um, tell us, let's talk a little bit about um, your your book. Tell us the how that came, how this book, um, Why Do They Hate Us? A after you've you've deconstructed your faith and your family has suffered immensely because of that. Um, what began to to turn in you to to begin to address this issue of, of the Muslim Christian divide, or maybe you should define the issue that you were addressing. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Um, you described it well. Um, basically, um, you know, it took, pro you know, I mean, um, the, all of the, to uh, set the timeline, um, we came back in 1997 and um, um, my, my son um, took his life in 2001 about in July. So it was only um, a few months before 9-11 happened. Um, and then only a few months, uh, like only a month after that when um, we, we invaded um, um, Afghanistan, United States mm -hmm. invaded Afghanistan. Um, so that, and that's, we're also at a 20 year anniversary point of that, um, of that invasion. But anyway, um, so uh, that's that's the timeline, and um, so it, it had been a long time. Um, um, really, the, the the twenty years between you know nineteen ninety seven or two thousand one when when I lost my son and when nine eleven happened, um, and when I wrote my book, I wrote my book in twenty nineteen. So there's eighteen years there. So honestly, I was just slugging it out, um, trying to you know recreate my life, and um, you know mm -hmm. I, was, I was no longer married. I was um, yeah, it was a really tough time. I lost, lost my son. I was just, just, just really putting one foot in front of the other, trying to be 
as good a dad as I could be to my daughters. Um, but, um, you know, I got, I got my feet settled again and, um, got going, um, well in back into my engineering career. Um, and, um, I just, um, you know, just began observing it. And what really kind of set it off was, um, really around the campaign running up to the 2016 election. Um, Trump was elected and he um, was so um, just blatant about the use of Islamophobia, the use of fear of Muslims in his, um, in his, as a campaign tactic, uh, as mm-hmm. a strategy. Um, you know, if you, if you, if you um, just, uh, if the viewers just Google um, Trump's speech about um, Islam hates us, he he said those those direct words, and in fact, he was asked that by by um, um, the the interviewer on CNN, um, and he and um, you know he just said, "I think Islam hates us." You know, that was that was you know as he was being interviewed as a as a as a um, as a candidate for president. So right. anyway, he he just right. went um, went kind of nuts with uh, Islamophobia as a um, as a tactic, and um, hate crimes um, as recorded by the FBI were greater in that period of time than they were right after 9-11. Um, so there was, it was, it just became, um, I was just noticing it a lot more and I, I felt it was time for me to speak up and just tell my story and um, tell my experience um, with, with my Muslim friends and what I knew about the religion of Islam and uh, clear up a lot of the misconceptions and just um, create a picture that was um, different than what the media was portraying of, about, you know, only the extremist version of Islam and and what are the ma- the mainstream, you know, like who who what is what is that doctor, you know, that you're seeing or dentist or or a taxi driver or the woman you see in the market wearing her hijab, you know, what are they like, you know, what, right, I, right. I felt it was time for me to tell their story. Well. Um... I want to get to get to more of that and your thoughts about um, what was behind 9-11, what led up to that, uh, what we did as a reaction to that, we being America, and and the 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 ways that you that I think you, you might think that exacerbated the the issues that we face. Let's we've got a call. It's one of our regulars. Let's let's uh, talk to G- Gordon. Um, Gordon is in California. He him. Um, and we'll just bring on Gordon and see what he wants to talk about and, and maybe ask a question for Steve. Hello, Gordon. Are you there? Oh, as with everything else <laughs> tonight, that's probably Sorry, not going to work. Shot. Let me can see you, here. can you take Gordon's call? Yeah. Hey, Hey Gordon, are you there? I'm there. I'm here. I'm hey, Gordon. Sorry for the technical issues tonight but uh, glad to have you on tonight did you have a question for our guest steve about the muslim world or what did you want to talk about well i've had a little experience with the muslim world i've spent a little time in north africa but that's not really what i was planning on um asking i wanted to ask and i know this will sound odd if it's ever socially acceptable and productive to tell a Christian to his face that Christianity is uh, horse manure. Believe it or not, I, I did such a, just such a thing not long ago. And the, um, 
reaction wasn't quite as bad as I had expected it would have been. Hmm. Well, social acceptability is is one of those fickle things that really depends on on the society in which in which you're you're asking. Um, I I don't know if that's the approach that I would take, but I mean, if if you've had success, that that is one thing. But you're also looking at a sample size of one in that case. Um, you know, I you know what what do, what do you guys think, Dave? Dave, Dave, you you and I were both we're both Christians. We we came into into faith as young men. Um, you know, caught up in the Jesus movement and wanting to wanting to uh, really ride that that horse. Uh, what what would your reaction to this question be, Steve, or this comment? Well, one of the things that I've learned uh, by getting a really close look at Islam and Muslims is that I always ask these kinds of questions kind of in parallel. I get out of my own context and go into the context of the other faith. And by doing that, I feel like I could get a lot better perspective of what it might mean within within my own um, in these days former belief system, but just just as a as a side note, so you know there's a there's a a, a lot going on in Europe um, and um, around you know the the cartoons of Muhammad and things like that and and the reactions to that and so. So I think um, culturally, um, it's important to understand that, you know, most uh, Islam is very is a very diverse. It doesn't you know, it's not just Arabs. Arabs only represent eight uh, percent of the Muslim world. Um, it's very diverse. But um, the cultures of the Middle East tend to be very honor based. And um, it's just, you know, important not to dishonor anyone within your family line, you know, not your not someone's mother, not someone's sister, um, or anyone, and and especially not you know the 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 prophet of, of their faith. So um, it triggers this this response. So you know I, I only say that sort of as a as a as a parallel thought um, uh, to to that question. Um, you know they they would re respond to something like that. You know not, not well. Um, they would they mm -hmm. would, um, they're culturally conditioned to have almost, you know, the, the need to defend someone's honor um, in that sense. So that's kind of where that comes from. It's, 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 a, it's a, a centuries old uh, cultural uh, norm. So we, we don't right. have that. Um, so <laughs> it's different. It's different with us. We just argue about things. Well, Gordon, uh, to your, to your point, what, what's yeah. your, uh, as you say, you, you did, tell a Christian that his Christianity was horse manure. Um, what was your motivation yeah. in, in telling that person that? And what did you hope to achieve from that? And what did you achieve from that? Well, what happened was, like I said, I was at a social event. I was at a, at a party and I was sitting next to a man and the, uh, the issue of Christianity came up. I was not the person to bring up the issue but I said something about it that was mildly critical. Now, mm -hmm. the other man, the man I was sitting next to, happened to be a, radio, a radiologist at Stanford University. And obviously, he's a scientist. I'm a scientist, too. I'm an astronomer. But his academic credentials, his scientific credentials are 
more impressive than my own. And he said, he made an argument for Christianity and for religion that I had never heard before. At least I'd never heard spoken to my face before. And he said, well, in order to be a competent scientist, one must first have to have a grounding in religion, preferably hmm. Christianity. So hmm. he was basically saying that to be a competent scientist, the first, the first requirement or prerequisite in almost every case is to be uh, a Christian and that he was saying that 90, 95% of the scientists that he personally deals with are, are Christians. And that's one of the contributing factors, which makes them great scientists. Yeah, so no. Yeah, yeah, no, that's all incorrect. <laughs> you know, that, that yeah, might have been his personal experience, but, but, you know, Pew Research uh, strongly disagrees. The vast majority of scientists consider themselves agnostic yeah. at the very least. Granted, they're scientists of all faiths. And maybe in the 1500s, it was a prerequisite, but, you know, otherwise you could be you know, executed for, for not proclaiming your faith in God or the only access to, to scientific mm -hmm. learning could be through the church. But um, right. I, I think it's fair to call that horse manure. At least I that probably would have said, I, I, I probably would have said horse shit, yeah, but I, nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not nearly as, as uh, polite as you, Gordon, I guess. Well, anyway, I, I agree with everything you say. And rather than talk about statistics or bringing up personal examples, uh, just sort of as a shorthand. I, I looked at him in the face and I said, well, yeah, but Christianity is still horse manure. And I kind of expected him to get mad at me and whatever, but I'm the younger man. If it actually came to blows, if we actually, if it, if it actually got physical, I probably would have had the advantage, but it didn't. Um, instead, he rather asked me uh, if if I wasn't religious, if I didn't believe in an afterlife, well, what was I living for? Because mm. what possible purpose could my life here on earth serve mm -hmm. unless I had an afterlife to look forward to? And, and I gave him the standard answer that since this is the only life I know for 100% sure that I do have, that it's very precious to me and that each moment is 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 very precious and I, I don't feel, I mean, I certainly hope that there's an afterlife and it's really great, but um, that's not a requirement for me to enjoy my life and go out and, and have a good time. And he actually took that pretty well. So uh, the remarkable thing is after all that came down, I still was able to make that one point and um, I came away from this situation feeling pretty okay because I was able to get one or two points across and I don't know how he felt about the whole thing, but it was something that uh, being that blunt, being that upfront about it was something that I uh, never really expected to find myself doing. And I was kind of surprised by my reaction and I was kind of surprised that it, it did, um, it turned out okay at the end. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't think most people, even if even if I walked up to somebody on the street and said, you know, you know, I think your religion is horse shit. 
you know, I wouldn't expect, you know, any fisticuffs to, to result from that. I would say that I, I wouldn't, you know, when you're thinking about your success, I wouldn't put the success of that conversation on the fact that you called Christianity horse manure and more so on the fact that you presented a rational, calm argument for why the existence of an afterlife is neither here nor there when it comes to finding meaning in life. Um, but interesting story as always, Gordon. I want to thank you uh, for calling in. It's always nice to hear from you. You always have the most interesting stories. Thank you. I'll be back. Yes, <laughs> we will talk to you again next week. You take care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, in the meantime, while we wait for uh, Dave to come back, we do have a phone call uh, from Correa in Missouri, and her call seems to be very on topic with what we are discussing, 9-11 and mental health. So let me get her on the line. Hi, Correa, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing, um, I'm doing pretty good. Um, happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Yes, a very, very happy Indigenous Peoples Day to everybody. Um, you had uh, some questions for myself or our guest and perhaps Dave. He's not here at the moment. I Hopefully he'll be back soon. Yeah, um, I was just, um, so I think I missed like the very beginning of it. So I just want to make sure I have the right context. So was Steve, was Steve formerly Christian or Muslim? Christian. Christian? Okay. Because um, that's why, like, so I had an, an uncle who, um, he, um, he was Christian, and then he converted, to, like, he changed to, like, Messianic Judaism, and he became convinced that he needed to go to Israel. Um, and so, like, he moved there, and he... Um, like after that happened it's like he had like a, a a mental breakdown essentially um he would be calling us and saying um that the government was out to get him and that jesus was a fraud and you know the entire time it was um like we didn't really like we couldn't do anything we were um halfway across the world and um i always like for me like september 1st through september 11th is a time that I just like reflect on, on him because on September 1st is when I found out that he had, and I'm, I like, this is uh, pretty rough, but as a protest to the government, he wrapped himself in a blanket, poured gasoline on that blanket and then set it on fire. And so he had um, like third degree burns over like 95% of his body. And we knew that like, it wasn't a matter of if he was going to pass, but when, and, um, and then he ended up passing away five days later on uh, September 6th, which is my birthday. And I always attribute it like that um, because he, on September 11th, he literally watched it happen outside of his apartment window. So like he saw people fall, you know, like he saw the fire, um, and like, that's always been like the, what I think is like the catalyst for his, like searching for, you know, like a, a deeper meaning. And then like that psychotic break. And what I was just wanting to, to talk about was how, um, like losing someone to suicide is 
hard enough. But then, like, especially if you are a Christian, there's this whole expectation or, like, that, like, that person, because they took their own life, is in hell. Mm -hmm. And so it's, like, I don't know. It's just, like, really screws up grief, like, when you're grieving over that person and feeling so conflicted. And um, and that's something that, like, as I am now an atheist that... Um, that I like reflect on and I just think about how, you know, like how awful it is to like put that on people and to put that pressure and to just make like their grief even worse because it's not about us. It's about like what that person was going through. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Steve, are you comfortable responding to this? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, all, all I can say is that, um, Really, you know, losing a losing a child. Um, I, I probably went through a solid two years of just deep, dark grief. Um, in, in terms of, uh, and and I was still at that point, still kind of, um, even though I had I had left left the church by then, or I was you know in the process. Um, I I still was you know probably at, at some percentage uh, still attached um, into the Christian belief system. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was, it was real tough. Um, but, you know, after, after years, I just remember one day, um, I, you know, just driving my car to work. I had a fairly long commute into work. It gave me some time to uh, contemplate um, and just, just I just remember uh, one day, one morning, thinking, you know what, you know, Andrew—that's my son's name—is Andrew's okay, Andrew's okay, and and I just had this release that um, all of that, um, you know, nice stuff that, that that you brought up, um, Korea, that that um, it's, it's just not real, um, and that you know he's fine, you know, if, if there is a soul. You know, he's good. He's not in pain anymore, and, and um, he, he's okay. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I, that's just how it worked for me. I would, you know, I'm not saying that's how it is for everybody, but just for me, um, that was the experience that I had. Yeah, I know that um, Curry. We we've talked about this before because um, I believe you lost your sister as well. Um, so I know we've 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 done a lot of chatting about grief uh, recently. And I know that in in my in my situation, I I was never raised Christian. I never had any Christian belief systems. Um, so yeah, what I do what I what I do take from you know I've lost you know my father most recently, but previously uh, friends to accidents and overdoses and and you know suicide. And what I take every time I lose somebody, um, I don't really, I don't believe in a soul that, you know, exists eternally, but I do believe in people living on, not just through our memories, but through our actions. Um, I think about what made that person special to me, uh, my fondest memories with them, the things that I always admired about them that I wish I had more of in myself. Um, and I, when I'm grieving, I sort of meditate on that and see what I can do to, to you know, make sure that they live on in, in that regard. Um, I think that's important. But as far as, you know, as far as 
9-11 being the catalyst for for what you think your your uncle may have been going through, it definitely sounds like he was going through some, you know, severe, untreated, um, you know, illnesses. But for a lot of people, um, 9-11 caused a, a nationwide collective trauma. I'm not surprised that he dived yeah, deep absolutely. into Messianic Judaism, but on a smaller scale, it, it, the, for a lot of people, 9-11 was a catalyst into far right wing propaganda and Islamophobia and, and not things that we would consider mental yes. illnesses, but things that have presented in a very damaging way. You know, I, I know friends who who say that they've lost their fathers because they used to be these kind, rational people. And now all they do is watch OAN and Fox News and and they they were so excited by by Trump's election, and now he's sort of the a more important cult leader than Jesus Christ because he was preaching just as Steve yeah. was mentioning earlier against. I think we have you know, the same dad. Yeah, not my father, but I I do I am talking about some fathers that I know certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's difficult to watch, but that's um, you know. Not to just, you know, stroke the ego of our guests, but I highly recommend reading this book because this is something that, that you discuss is, is this collective trauma of the United States and how this is all mm-hmm. sort of a fear-based response that we've sort of watched unfold and sort of explode in the last five years. Um, I'm so sorry that it hits you yeah. so personally, Correa. And I am so happy to welcome Dave back to the show. Yeah. I know we're having a lot of technical difficulties I don't know there. what's going on. Sorry, you guys. I feel like I'm really messing up the show. So <laughs> You could never. Uh, you uh, could never. Well, say I'm something important up, before um, we lose you again. Well, I, I wanted to... I, I know we got a caller on, so I'm not, I don't want to step over that, but... Um, I, I wanted to, um, if you guys haven't already covered it while I was on vacation, um, y- your, uh, I wanted to talk about 9-11, the causes of it, the aftermath of it, um, our entry into the Middle East and the 20-year the debacle that that was, and the lives, not only the lives that we've lost, that have, the people who have died, but I have a good friend who spent three tours of duty in Afghanistan. And he suffers from severe PTSD and he's lost several members of his squad to suicide post return from that. And, and so the cost that we're continuing to pay the, the price that we're continuing to pay for uh, our, our reaction to nine 11 and I'll call it that, but I wanted you to speak to that, Steve, to, to speak to, what you saw happen after 9-11, our reaction to that and what, what, is, what it's cost us moving forward, especially in the light of the fall of Afghanistan just a couple of months ago. Right, right, okay. Um, well, it's impossible to talk about, um, you know, what led up to 9-11 um, without considering um, what happened in 1979 when um, the Soviets um, actually invaded Afghanistan mm-hmm. and they they invaded actually um, not to actually take over the country. The country already had a pro-communist government and they invaded to to support. They were the pro-communist government was not able to provide centralized government. There were you know um, dozens and dozens of tribal groups and like I think at least 12 um, 
major ethnic groups within Afghanistan, and they were not able to establish centralized government. Mm-hmm. So that's what the, uh, the the Soviet invasion was about. Um, but it was the U.S. response to that that completely set the stage and created the perfect conditions for the creation of so-called Islamic terror, uh, because um, the U.S. decided to to use Islamic terror as a tactic against the Soviets. And um, over the course of the next 10 years, between 1979 and 1989, um, the U.S. dumped billions of dollars, um, you know, in, in direct cash. Um, you know, we're talking about um, suitcases full of cash going mm. to um, various warlords. Um, um, these are these are not Taliban. These are pre-Taliban. These are these are tribal leaders who became warlords. And it's important also to understand that their um, um, kind of uh, mentality towards women is no better um, than the Taliban. And, you know, you know, one of these, one of these guys, one of these warlords was actually um, personally threw acid into the face uh, of, of a woman um, who was whatever getting educated or something, and um, so these warlords were equally um, as bad as the Taliban. And so the U.S. was, you know, um, supporting these warlords, making them stronger and stronger. And and um, there were multiple factions of them um, as a tactic to get the Soviets out over ten years, with no consideration whatsoever, none, and no control over what would happen when the Soviets crossed back over that bridge back into the Soviet Union and there was there was Afghanistan ungoverned completely ungoverned and mm-hmm. even ungoverned for those 10 years while that war um, with the Soviets was taking place all this time um, this is when bin Laden is setting up in these ungoverned reaches with cash by the billions coming into the country for weapons to fight the Soviets and we virtually converted the, the Cold War into the war on terror by creating Al-Qaeda, et cetera, um, and just, just feeding that uh, whole uh, machine. Uh, hmm. And it directly, directly led, uh, um, led to 9-11. So ironically, within 12 years of supporting Afghanistan against the invasion of the Soviets, only 12 years later, the United States itself is invading Afghanistan. So, I mean, that's just remarkable. Um, I find, you know, how could we be supporting, uh, you know, a country against the invasion and then 12 years later turn around and invade them ourselves? Um, so it was, it was clearly a um, horribly misguided, um, you know, uh, tactic. And um, as, I've, as I've thought about it, especially in the course uh, over the last, you know, couple of years, um, waking up to um, um, the idea of, you know, our, our white supremacy and, and um, that all of the all of the, the history of our nation, I see it as a, as a mere, mere extension of this supremacist attitude, you know, we don't care about those people who cares what happens to them. We have our own interests, we have American interests, that's all that matters and who mm-hmm. cares what happens to them. Um, and I just see it as an extension of a, of a, of a supremacist mentality. Um, so um, I've kind of rambled on there, and I, I hope I addressed um, yeah. most of the points of your question. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's it's fair to say with 
you know, just the long, long history of the Middle East. Um, yeah, Western powers coming in and getting involved over the last 200 years has, has made it uh, made quite a mess of it from overthrowing a democratically elected government in Iran because we wanted their oil to, you know, you know, colonialism and imperialism by the British in general in the early 20th century. I mean, it's there's there is no doubt that it was directly the, you know, misguided foreign policy of the United States and our allies um, that led to the events on 9-11. And and it's because we never stopped to consider what is best for the people who live there. What is what is actually, you know, what is what is just versus, you know, what is good for our bottom line and for our biggest contractors or or oil companies. Um, I think it's definitely a blight on one of the many blights on our on our nation, unfortunately. Um, Well, I uh, yeah, Correa, you're still on. Did you uh, did you have a comment back to what Steve said? Um. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what has been, like, just crazy to think about how how much our country has changed over the years and that also, like, how much it hasn't because so so many people, like, they, you know, every September 11th, they're going to, you know, like, post things on Facebook and they're going to say, like, they remember, but, like, we don't right. follow it up with our, our actions. You know, mm-hmm. like, we don't, like, especially... Um, you know, as white nationalism keeps rising, like they they try to almost like especially like the the media. Um, it's not from both sides, of course, but like it's just like so normalized. And it, yeah. I, I just, yeah, I get worried about it. Is time. and we like I don't think anyone would have anticipated the capital, you know, getting attacked. You know, even like two years ago. But no, it's it's gotten. It is, and it's a scary place in the sense that, um, and I want to speak to this more, Steve. I know you and I have talked about um, dealing with religious folks, and then and then being drawn more to ex-Christian or ex-religious folks who've done the hard work to examine their faith and look into what we believe and why, rather than just parroting what we've been told and and reflecting back what's been shown to us. Um, you know, we, we clearly are in a in a place in this country, maybe even the whole world, I don't know, that it's more and more us against them. It's us and others. And the others, and, and to your point that you said earlier, Steve, Trump did a whole lot of damage to really give license to that kind of mentality, to give voice to the things that weren't spoken before. There's been a lot of of racism and Christian nationalist thoughts, but people were afraid to say it out loud until Trump came along. And he, he then gave permission for everyone to say anything you want and to treat the other with more and more disdain because he ran on a platform of, of excluding the other, you know, building a wall and, and fomenting hate for Muslims and really anyone that's not, anglo-saxon or that doesn't look exactly like him god forbid and so this country just seems to be going more and more down that path of us against them and Mm -hmm. and this this uh cry for christian nationalism is reaching alarming levels and like 
like you said, Cray, it's just, you know, the idea that some radicals could storm our capital. I mean, I, I, I sat glued to the TV watching that with the same level of disbelief and horror that I did it and and 9-11, although the the casualties weren't the same. The the shock and 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 horror of what I was watching was similar in my gut. Yeah. I was just I was just thinking, what is happening my, here? I, sorry, yeah, my dad and I we got into an argument because like I I called it a terrorist attack and he like disagreed and I was like, okay, so what if this was you know not a group of white people but let's say this is the you know like a group like from Islam and mm -hmm. they break into our capital. And they do thirty million dollars worth of damage. That yeah, to like try to overthrow our election. Like, Steve, what do you think the reaction would have been if terrorism? If, and like, they were chanting to kill the vice president. I can't stand Mike Pence, but he was our vice president. Right. Like, try you know, someone trying to kill our vice president is bad for our country as a whole. I don't care what side you're on. So, yeah, like, peaceful transfer of power is pretty important. Steve, what do you think the reaction would have been if those were um, Muslim people storming the Capitol? Seriously. Yeah, well, 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 oh, we yeah. already know. Um, I mean, we, we know because, you know, within a month after 9-11, we were invading, uh, you know, Afghanistan. And then we followed that up by invading Iraq. And literally, we have killed um, over a million, um, you know, people from in, in the Muslim world um, over over 9/11, which which killed 3,000 people, and, and obviously it was a, it was a horrible, um, you know, horrible uh, uh, you know terrorist event. Um, um, but you know, comparatively, you know, we've we've killed a million and, and invaded two countries, um, mm -hmm. you know, ostensibly as a, as a, as a result of that. So yeah, we we know we know how we respond um, to Muslims when they do stuff like that. Because we, we, we already have done it um, since 9-11. And one of the things I wanted to comment on based on uh, or uh, from what you said about how um, Trump opened the door um, for this sort of, um, um, you know, othering and, um, you know, just being open about um, making, you know, you know um, direct, hateful you know, hate speech, make normalizing hate right, speech right, in, right. in the public arena. I mean, that started honestly right after 9/11. Um, that was what opened the door. Before 9/11, we were we were in a in a kind of an you know it, it wasn't it wasn't perfect for sure, but I mean we were kind of in a, a time of political correctness. You know, I remember watching um, shows uh, news shows about some candidate who would just slip up. He'd just slip up and and say something that could be construed as a racist statement and that could be the end of his career you know mm -hmm. i mean there, we, mm -hmm. that was that was the way it was back then but after 9 11 and it was the evangelical leaders guys like franklin graham um there was a baptist pastor um they were they were just saying you know really horrible things that i won't even repeat um uh, about about muhammad and etc and just just blurting it out there and that was when it started. That was when it, say, restarted. That was when they started crawling out of their, their back rooms and um, saying this stuff out in the open again um, was, was after the evangelicals normalized hate speech against Muslims. Um, that's when it um, restarted again. That was the trigger point. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a uh, it's unfortunate that um you know Islamophobia I mean, and racism are not are not are not new things. You know, Trump Trump definitely emboldened people to to be more open about it, but you know, I still remember in 2000 it was it was popular. And then of course we think back to the 80s and the 70s and the 60s and then we're just getting into when it was, you know, legalized, you know, over racism. Um but I am going to let you go, Korea. It is always so good to hear from you. Yes, I, thanks I for calling. For this call. And everybody remember you great. can Um the only thing I was going to mention was the internment camps from like World War II and how like just like it's Trump brought it to the surface, but it's always been there. It's always oh been. yeah, yep, sure. absolutely. Oh, yeah. And then oh, you yeah. know we can go go back to you know All stealing right. indigenous land and and it goes you know there's there is not a time in the United States when there has not been some sort of racist uh, atrocity committed uh, by the hands of the government. So. On that happy note, I will yeah. talk to you later, Korea. Thank you so much for calling. Thanks for having me. We yep. have lines open. Call in. Also, hit the like and subscribe button if you can. Um, we appreciate your support. Even maybe it'll help me get a better uh, internet system here. I don't know. Um, Steve, Steve, what are you um, or uh, Genevieve too? Both of you. I'm. I'm, I'm just. These kind of conversations really do trouble me because I don't see us going. I don't know how we go forward. How do we get better? And, and Steve, you mentioned that um, that, that break, breaking down the religious barrier is important. I, I, I kind of come from a position of we're going to be a better world if there's no religion at all, because these religious divides and it's and religion is now crossed over into so much of a political arena where uh, the evangelicals are are joined at the hip with the conservative Republicans, and it's they've melded into almost this amalgam that you can't even identify one from the other, um, and they've they've become very political. So, what what's the answer here? How do we move forward as a as a culture, as a as a country, as a society? Anybody? <laughs> Anybody have any ideas? I would start with economic opportunities and education. You know, it is so it is so easy to be radicalized when you are desperate and you are and you do not have a lot of opportunity and you have talking heads that tell you that hey, these people are to blame, whether that's immigrants or or Muslims or or you know any sort of the others. Um, it's, it's a lot more difficult to be radicalized when you have economic opportunity, especially uh, opportunity that allows you to travel um, and, and just its education. Um, of course, with that, we have to think about why is our education system so poor? And then we have to think about, uh, you know, where our tax dollars go and gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's such a quagmire of issues that come together. And I don't, I don't know if we need to reach a tipping point um, because it has become so, so polarized. I, I, d I don't know. What Steve, do you think, Steve? do you know Steve? how to save the world? Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with, um, with everything you say in terms of, you know, um, fixing the things that are wrong. And um, part of the way that I go about it is um, 
I, I look at it kind of um, from a sociological perspective. Um, and I, I, I try to go, um, you know, deep into, into root causes and, um, you know, to the point of, you know, changes in our brains and, you know, uh, changes that are ultimately some sort of branching point in the evolutionary process um, that actually, you know, will, will lead to, you know, so it's a, some micro decision that will, will lead to a, a, a change in our, in our DNA. Um, but, but right now we're operating, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, that was developed, or, you know, over thousands of years ago being a hunter hunter gatherer the world has changed since the industrial revolution since um especially since you know the age of information um way 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 faster than humans can even possibly think about evolving you know i mean in terms of from a genetic perspective and we can evolve in the way that we think which i think leads to those genetic changes but so anyway that <laughs> Uh, so, sorry. so you, uh, you, you, the you've been in the, the Muslim world where you saw these these Muslims radicalized and and the you know become uh, radicalized so that they would do things like 9/11 and become terrorists and strap bombs to their chest. And so those of us in the West think of all of them like that, you know, because that's what they all do. And you know that's not right because you've you've lived. And that's what your the that's what your whole point of your book is, as I see it, to yeah. call attention to the normalization of them. They're just like us. They're just like us. Right. So, so how do they, exactly. what, so, yeah, what, how do they get radicalized over there? Just like we do here? Well, it's important to realize that, yeah, this is exactly what, what Genevieve said, is that this has nothing to do with the religion of Islam. Nothing. If you look at all of the uh, manifestos or things that have been written, you know, by these terrorists, and I quote, I quote this in my in my book. Um, there was a study done, um, an exhaustive study done of all of the terrorist incidents that had took place over uh, some two or three decade period of time, and 95% of them um, were were committed for political reasons. Um, mm -hmm. None of them were well, five percent were were uh, committed for some religious ideology. So these guys are not these guys are not attacking because um, you know, yay yay Islam and and down with Christianity or anything like that. No, they're they're um, they're doing these attacks as out of desperation um, because their countries are occupied you know, by, by foreign troops, you know, um, they're, they're, they're in absolute desperation. And, and it's not just Islam. This happens, you know, across ideologies, you know, it happened in, in Ireland, right? Um, you know, it, this, this is just what, what people do when they, when they find their, their independence and their freedom threatened. Um, so um, to answer your question, um, that, that's how, that's how they get radicalized um, mm -hmm. by, you know, by, those political things and then including on um, poverty. But interestingly, um, the all the 9-11 attackers were actually very well off. And there is some there is some flaw in thinking that only the economically disadvantaged um, are, are going to be radicalized, but also the educated are also because why because they're they're in tune with these um, political events that are taking place and they're 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 reading newspapers that you know they're reading um, stories about, you know, what's going on in the political events of the world. So um, just because a person, you know, you know, is, is more educated does not mean they, they can't be radicalized.
So let me ask you this. I've, I've wondered this before. I'd love your perspective on the 9-11. Thinking of these men who flew the planes into the buildings, they knew they were going to die. What was their motivation? Were they really believing that it was they were going to be rewarded by Allah in, in the life to come? What, what was, did they care that little for their own lives? What was behind that in your view? I, I honestly, I don't feel, um, I don't feel qualified to, to answer that question. I can tell you that several of those guys um, were, were um, known to have been in porn shops the night before. Or whatever that oh, is. What is it? Something and what, I did not know. And what what do you think that connection is or would be? That again, that it's not about some devotion to some ideology. So that point is not it's yeah, a the, political yep. it's a political yeah. rage that's more driving it. And it's they're willing to die for it. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, something I, that's... I, uh, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, it is tough. You know, there's, a, there's something that you bring up in your book as well. Um, in a similar vein, when we think about, you know, the honor killings that happen in the Middle East, um, what's in, what I found interesting, what I didn't know, was that uh, a majority of the people who, who commit these honor killings against, you know, their female family members... They're not the, you know, the most pious practicing Muslims. A lot of them aren't praying regularly. They are not the ones that are, you know, going to to pray five times a day, or maybe they don't even, you know, observe Ramadan in its entirety. And so it's interesting that we we see these problems that are arising in in Muslim communities or with these extremists. And it's interesting that we still in the West, we will tend to apply it to the religion as a whole. And in my mind, it reminds me of if we looked at the Westboro Baptist Church and said that all Christians were like that, all Christians mm -hmm. were out there picketing the funerals of soldiers. And, and, you know, you know, it's, it really is the, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Um, Steve, what are your thoughts? Uh, before we, we we've got a few minutes left, but what are your thoughts in in terms of what what could we have done differently back when things <clears throat> began to go down a dark road that would have prevented something like nine eleven from happening? Do you think we could have prevented it, or would we eventually? Yes, have absolutely. There? I, I yeah, no, I think it's it's really not that difficult. I mean. Um, we, we were in a, a stage of, uh, you know, um, terror at the time. We were terrified of communism. Um, you know, we'd just been through Vietnam. The Korean War had happened. Countries were falling like dominoes, um, you know, to the Soviet bloc. And um, so that was the driving force, was, was this fear uh, of communism. And if we would have just done one simple thing, and that is to um, rather than just ignore what was um, you know best for the people of Afghanistan after the Soviets invaded we're talking back in 1979 if we would have actually worked with them um, and and done things diplomatically and established relations with them instead mm -hmm. of just 
just, um, you know, dumping arms and cash into the country with, with you know, no thought whatsoever, um, you know, what was best for them. It wouldn't have happened. 9-11 would not have happened. Um, Al-Qaeda wouldn't exist. And none of that, none of that would have happened. Um, so it's, it's just a matter of, you know, not having this supremacist mentality. We're going to do this because we can. And, and um, you know, this, this is in American interests. Um, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. So I, I, I feel like we should, have, we should have worked with Afghanistan from a diplomatic perspective um, with, with, you know, peaceful methods um, and really let them have a say, obviously, in what was the best way to do this. And, you know, bring them to the, to the table and have that conversation with them. And, and then after 9-11, what, what was 9-11 if it was not an opportunity for introspection? Mm-hmm. You know, why didn't we, you know, he asked the right question, George W. Bush, why, why do they hate us? You know, we should have, we should have asked that question and we should have gone for the real answer, you know, and we yeah. should have gone back into the history of our intervention um, over there and, and, you know, come up with the right answer, you know, and, and, and not responded by invading Af- uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, but responded by changing our foreign policy, you know, um, to a, to a more, um, uh, uh, you know, not, a, a non-supremacist um, foreign policy. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think that supremacist ideology is in our roots. I mean, you look at how we even uh, populated this country, and and so now, I'm I guess I'm a little skeptical that that the powers that be can change that mentality. Uh, I I would like to think so, but have you gotten a lot of uh, pushback? Have you gotten people saying things like "Do you hate America" and stuff like that? Have you gotten some hate mail. Well, and yeah, things. occasionally, occasionally. I mean, I I am pretty careful about you know who I talk to, and um, I tried some Facebook ads um, a couple times, and you know, you, oh, yeah, you're supposed to be able to really target, you know, really micro target, you know, who who you who you send these to, and so I was really careful in terms of you know I'm not sending that these out to you know crazy right wingers you know these are going to be like Bernie Sanders supporters and things <laughs> like that you know I was really careful uh, but oh my gosh I mean every time really? I just got blasted uh yeah just, like what I mean, like what I like think, what were what were they saying what like what what kind of pushback oh, did you just, get just the usual just the usual stuff not nothing you know yeah just just that um you know, um, all Islamophobic stuff, you know, they're, they're crazy, they're terrorists, you know, they just, they just want to blow everything up. And, um, you know, you know, all the stuff, you know, I can't even mm. repeat it. It's just, it's just horrible. And I, and I refuse to repeat it. Um, but yeah, just um, horribly Islamophobic misinformation. Um, just, um, just like, like it was, it was like a, like somebody pulled a trap door and just, <laughs> just started oh, flooding in, into, into that post. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean that's not that's not surprising unfortunately. No, it's not. It's yeah, and and this is it's interesting. I actually I talked about this uh on TikTok today about how I've had so many people ask why I feel so comfortable openly going against, you know, different aspects of Christianity, but that I don't do that about Islam and and number one, I'm I'm not nearly as familiar or educated in Islam as I am on, you know, you know, Christian society. But number two, it seems like 
anytime anytime somebody might bring up some legitimate criticisms of of Islam or or some concerns just like that it quickly just descends into generalized racism and bigotry and i'm much 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 more concerned in america about the consequences of islamophobia than i am the consequences of islam not to say that there aren't any i do have plenty of friends who are are ex-muslims and they can't show their face online because they've been doxxed numerous times or they've been threatened by their families right, and right. and it's right. and that i think so often that's more of a a problem with you know patriarchy and mm -hmm. and with this you know sure. with an honor system more so than it is specifically with islam granted i you know as an agnostic atheist i do sort of stand behind what you know voltaire said as well you know those who can convince you of absurdities can make you commit atrocities it's just mm. when it comes to the sphere of islam you know the absurdities are not what I feel the need to fight against. I think as Americans, mm -hmm. it's really important for us to stand up against Islamophobia. Right. You know, my my partner's Middle Eastern. He moved here from Pakistan when he was, you know, five or six years old. And and he has been called a terrorist his entire life. His mm. entire life. Right. You know, it's right. it's a it's a constant right. struggle for anybody of Middle Eastern descent. Um, so right. America, if you could stop doing that, that would be super, super great. <laughs> and maybe stop yeah. invading everybody too. Please, <laughs> please. And thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I see that so much in that, you know, we think it's only the right wing. Um, but I, I worked almost exclusively with, with more progressive thinkers and Democrats. And, um, it, it's not that. You know, the, what I find is that they're not they're not mean. They're not going to come out and say all the you know openly racist things, but they have the same misperceptions. They just sort of keep them mm -hmm. to themselves. So that's that's where I work. I work with those people who are who are you know they they understand there are issues. They understand they may not understand everything, and they're especially becoming aware you know based on uh, our. our awareness now of racism and, and genocide of native native american people that this extension of one more one more facet of this this ugly diamond of um of, of racism towards every, every all non-white groups um so that's that's where i focus most of my my time and energy i, I look at this challenge uh, in, for, as as a country that we have much like I see uh, our own deconstruction uh, efforts. You know, Steve, we, we had, Genevieve never went down that quagmire road that we went down, but we had to, at, at, some, at some point, we came to the place where we had to admit we were wrong about that. Something that we were very convinced of, something we were convicted of to the point of selling out and doing the radical things we did. And then we came to a place of saying, I was wrong about that. And it takes some courage to do that. It takes a, a place of saying, you know what, I, I, I was misguided. And, and until we as a higher percentage of people in this country come to the place of saying we were wrong about that, we were wrong about how we treated the American Indians, we were wrong about how we treated the, the black folks in the South, we were wrong about invading Afghanistan and, and becoming uh, trying to take over the world, so to speak, and uh, we until we get where we can say we were wrong, we're not going to move forward. And that's, that's why I'm a little skeptical that we can do it at this point because of what I've been seeing in the last few years with the general populace. I mean, it's how, how I guess my question is this before we run out of time. 
and and Genevieve, maybe you can ask one final question of Steve too. We got about ten minutes, but how can your average Joe Blow who reads your book? Why do you uh, hold it up again, will you, G? Yes, because you can hold it up better than me, folks. For they can find that on Amazon and Steve's uh, bios in the links and things like that. So, um, but having read this book and for those that do read it and and go at the end of it saying, "Wow, we got a problem and we really messed up." How can the average Joe Blow do anything about this, Steve? What what can I do? What can Genevieve do? What can anyone do? So so just to sort of continue that, that thought I had started before about you know the uh, the neurological changes, the evolutionary changes is I find that um, probably on that on that level the the most powerful thing is um, is is relationship and um, so it's based on a principle that we have created a society now a global society right I mean who can deny that we that we're living in in a global society now you know, right. I can I can FaceTime with anybody in the world in a moment. I can get on a plane and be anywhere in the world in a day. You know, so so the, this this tribal um, so, sociology that that we we have chained ourselves to that we still live in, and it permeates not just like actual physical tribes, but I, I think religion is is a form of a tribe, and um, we 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 are in these tribal groups. It just does not work in this society that we have created. No, so we're going to, if we're going to survive as a species, we need to um, overcome the bounds of ancient sociology. And we need to overcome the bounds of, you know, limiting ourselves to waiting until we genetically adapt to this world. We can't, we've created a world that we can't, can't possibly genetically adapt to. So we have to use these brains that we've used to create this world to adapt to it also. And the way we're going to adapt to it is by forcing ourselves to meet other people, forcing ourselves out of our little tribal groups, um, our, our common income groups, our common race groups, our common ethnic groups, our common national groups, our common ability groups, our common you know, gender, sexuality groups, and force ourselves to meet other people and hear their stories and just hear their stories. What was their like? like? How was it like for you growing up? What have you experienced? I find that doing that, I've brought people into groups that, that do that and they come in, you know, kicking and screaming, saying, the only reason I'm doing this is because you're my friend and, I, and you, you asked me to do this and I go, oh, whatever, okay, I'll do it. And then after hearing stories from people of people from, you know, various backgrounds and, you know, we're talking, we're not talking about a story that's, you know, why I'm such a great person. We're talking about the story of the events in their life that made me who I am. And it's, it's often mm -hmm. a very vulnerable, um, heart-wrenching thing. People are changed by the end of the, by the end of our, our time together of se several weeks of telling stories yeah everybody's just their, their minds are blown their minds and so i think that's what that's what we need to do and it's it's going to take it's not going to happen naturally we're going to have to in a sense engineer and create a new sociology that's uh adapted to the world that we've created for ourselves so that's what i mm. try to do but i'm telling you i, I gotta tell you it, it's very slow going and i definitely feel like one of those salmon that's like trying to jump up the waterfall um i bet you do yeah it's it's one person at a time what you're saying yeah, is it's one person yeah. at, a, at a time and individual conversations and hearing everyone everyone has a story and it's worth listening to genevieve final thoughts 
Um, well, I was going to say we've got, you know, roughly six minutes we've got to play with. We have a caller that has been so patient and oh. I'm hoping that we could get a call in just, you know, quick four minutes. I will, I will give my last thoughts to this okay. patient gentleman because I honestly, Steve, I could talk to you about this book and my thoughts for hours and hours and we don't have that, but let me get, this is Cliff who is from North Carolina. Um, he has been, oh my gosh, he's been on hold for 54 months minutes and wants to see what the host thought about how to get along with highly religious people um if he is still here hi cliff are you there hi folks i sure am hi how are you hey cliff thanks for waiting so long my man yeah no problem and hey dave this is your your neighbor cliff same one oh cliff hey buddy <laughs> yeah how's it going dude Good to hear from you, man. Yeah, yeah, you too. I happened to catch uh, your show, and I've just kind of been doing stuff um, on the side. But anyways, I know I know we're short on time, and uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, if I may, um, so I have a couple of neighbors, uh, not referring to you, Dave, uh, but uh, <laughs> other neighbors um, who uh, it, like it is blatantly, patently obvious that they are very, um, very Christian and very, very deep into it, um, like to the point where. I was over there a couple of years ago for uh, a um, board game night and a couple of friends who were also over for the board game night were introduced as like, this is so-and-so and such and such. And they are prayer warriors and just kind of oh, like God. moved on. And I was like, wait, <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah they were introduced as prayer warriors and I thought right. it was a joke or an obscure meetup or something like that. But no, that, that was just, the the most pertinent thing about these friends, you know, that they they wished very hard for things, I guess. <laughs> what it amounts to. Um, however, so so they're they're deep in it, um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of shows uh, like I like yours, and you know, I like um, like ACA type shows and debates and stuff like that. And I was raised in a, a non-religious family. I remember mentioning this to you on the meetup days, or meetups days that. Um, uh, you know, I grew up more or less in a Unitarian Universalist household. Uh, most, uh, if not all of my friends, especially my close ones, are atheists or at the very least non-religious. Um, so I don't have to deal with relationships with um, with uh, religious fanatics, I'll just go ahead and say, uh, very often. But I have a good relationship with these neighbors. And so, like... Part of my question is, and maybe there's someone else out there listening to this, you know, who, who has a similar problem is like, so we, when you're friends or at least friendly with someone in your life, family, friend or, or neighbor or whatever, uh, who is, you know, a religious extremist, more or less, and you are an atheist, uh, for sure. Like, it, there's that divide there. It feels like there's always that divide. And when I listen to these shows like yours, and like I mentioned, I always think about these neighbors and like, cause I agree with you, Dave, that I think it was you who said it earlier that, you know, a world without religious extremism or religion or religion or fanatics or, you know, it, it would be a better world. Like I definitely agree. So I always think about these neighbors, but I also want to maintain a good relationship with them because we watch each other's cat, you know, like when we're out, when we're out of town uh, back and forth. Um, so it, is that just kind of how it goes with these? Types how do you do it? Your question is how, how do you, 
So how do you get along with them, yeah. Steve? Do you want to speak to that or Genevieve? Well, yeah. Is there always is there always that wedge there? Is that just how it is, and that's just how yes. it's going to be? You know what I mean? Yes. Um, I think um, from my perspective, um, one of the things that I keep in mind is that their number one goal is to convert you. So you have to you have to remember that yeah. the reason that you got invited to the game night was so that they would you know have a chance to work on you. Um, so I always try to keep that in mind. And, and then the other thing is just having really clear boundaries, you know, in terms of as soon as they start to go there, it's like, oh, oh, oh nope, nope, no, we're not going there. And you just got to cut them off and make it really clear and try to keep it. It's really difficult. In fact, it's impossible for them. I'm speaking from experience here. It's impossible, you know, on, on the other side, from being on the other side, it's impossible for them to have a relationship with you that's just based on you, you and uh, as friends, um, they've always they always have this agenda. So if you can help them get beyond that agenda and just be friends for the sake of being friends, you'll really be helping them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, go that, ahead, G. Uh, I was gonna say, you know, that's you know my experience you know living in north carolina as somebody who was raised entirely secular um and suddenly surrounded by people who were far more religious than anybody i'd ever met in my entire life the way i navigated it was by not telling them that i was an atheist not bringing it up not making any Mm. comments just keeping it super neutral super friendly um and and this is in part because a i love these people and i you know they're important to me and i you know really wanted to impress them um, and B, because there is this idea in those circles that, you know, atheists, agnostics, whatever, we're basically like demons spawn eating babies and having <laughs> sex with each other all the time and like have no moral yeah, compass. We are the ones horrible, that they need that are good, yeah, right? It's this horrible, horrible, bad word. Like to say you're an atheist is like one of the worst things that you mm-hmm. could say, you know, families have shattered because of this. So I, if I could just live as, as you know, my my friendly kind self helping them out you know being a good neighbor being a good friend um and then i hoped that if it did ever come out that i was an atheist years down the road they would say wow everything i thought i knew about atheists was wrong Mm -hmm. you know and yes they will probably they will always try to convert you which is why i wouldn't i i wouldn't let on to them that you are somebody who needs to be converted nor would I wear Jesus on my sleeve and pretend like, you, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to do that. But ultimately, right. no matter no matter where you're from, what religion you are, humans, we're, we're all the same. We all want to, you know, have nice neighbors and live in a safe neighborhood and, you know, have somebody to watch our cats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, I think your goal is similar, of course. Yeah. So that's that's my two cents. Any, well, any last things to, to add, Dave? Nope, I think that's it. We do have to run. We've got just a minute left. We've got a sharp cutoff at 8.30, and I want to make sure we give a good sign-off to Steve. But um, good luck with your neighbors, Cliff. If you need any help with them, you let me know. I'll, co- I'll come over and talk <laughs> yeah. to them. There you good go. Yeah, I'll be hitting you up there sometime for some hangouts or something. I'd, okay, I'd like, buddy. I'd like good, to think that'll be all right. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll do it soon. Yeah. Thanks for Thanks calling. Thanks for the call, brother. You're awesome. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Well, yeah, he's he's a good guy. We've met up. Uh, he's part of the Christ, uh, Charlotte Atheists and Agnostics here in Charlotte. Um, but Steve, before we let you go, I, I've noticed in the chat that a couple of people have ordered your books as we speak tonight. Oh, 
That's awesome. So where can we support you? Where can we find you? Where can we get your book? Uh, tell us just in one minute what you got. Okay. Well, my basic website is just my name, steveslocum.com. And uh, I've got a blog going there and um, full access to my, to my book from whatever platform um, you want. And then also uh, my nonprofit is salamusa.org. And, um, oh, I also wanted to say that I, I'm giving away um, the, 20, the 20 pages. I have a 20-page excerpt of what I wrote about um, Afghanistan. And I'll be happy to email that to anyone um, for, for free. If um, you just um, email me at steve at salamusa.org. And um, steve at salamusa.org. And I'll, I have a, already a formatted excerpt. Um, that I've awesome. been sending out already um, about about the uh, background with uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, I'll be hitting you up for that too, bro. Steve, thank you for coming on. It's cool. been an incredible conversation, even though I had technical issues. Apologies for that. But I feel like it's one of those things, as Genevieve said, we could talk about for hours. Um, it's a very important subject, and I thank you for bringing this to us. And that's our show for tonight. Next week is Andrew Seidel. We'll talk more about Christian nationalism. See you next week, folks. Thanks.